Our first reading this morning is from 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the Holy Prophet and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives just as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And now Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. And this is the second death. All right, six to eight are heading out for their time. Bible study. For everyone else, leave your Bible open wherever it is, because we're going to be jumping all around today. It's our second uh, doctrinal sermon. I'll lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word and you teach us so many wonderful things about who you are and who we are in relation to you. Pray that you'd be with me and us this morning as we consider the last day and the last days. Uh, and that on account uh, of our thinking about this, uh, we'd be better prepared for the return of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. And it's a big problem that plagues Christians, especially in the first world, is what I call the fluffy future fail. We know that in the future, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, and then we'll all go to heaven where everything will be perfect. But the details of that great future are often, for many people, kind of scatty. So it just stays in the fluffy category, pie in the sky when you die. And because that great future is relegated to the fuzzy, fluffy, not too well-defined box, it uh, doesn't affect our day-to-day -day thinking and decisions very much, if at all. For many Christians, life has a predictable shape. Of course, there's church, there's growth group, there's the ongoing struggle with Bible and, 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 and prayer. And apart from that, though, it's you work lots, you try to own your own home, you put the kids through school, you make sure you've got a decent retirement. And Oh, and because you're a Christian, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Your ultimate destination is a happy ending, but one that remains largely undefined. And because it's largely undefined, it has very little bearing on your life in the here and now, other than it operates like a really, really good insurance policy. To fix this problem of the fluffy future fail is to consider what the Bible teaches us about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of what the Bible calls the last things or the last days. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the way that the uh, writer to the Hebrews begins his great sermon, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, next slide, he has spoken to us by his son. The adjective last there is taken from the Greek word eschatos, from which we get the word eschatology. And here we see that the last days are already present. It's actually these last days. The return of Jesus and the final judgment obviously has not happened, and yet the goal to which God is moving all history, the end point, if you like, has already begun. God's future has broken into our present. Eschatology is not only concerned with what will happen on the last day, but also with what is happening in these last days. And it's this overlap of the ages, or as I've called it on your outline, the beginning of the end, where we're now going to start to see how the Bible defluffies the future and enables us to live in these last days in light of the last day. 
So I hope you're ready to get stuck into it with me. We're at point one on the outline, the beginning of the end. The Old Testament prophets set up an expectation that God would one day have people, have his people in a perfect kingdom, ruled over by the, the great son of David, the Messiah, and that that kingdom would last into eternity. When Jesus preached the gospel at the start, the first thing he said was, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. As he was being crucified, the criminal on the cross next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And yet, after his resurrection from the dead, his disciples, Acts 1-6, gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The only way you can hold all these things together is to assume, rightly, that God's eschatological kingdom has begun but has not yet been consummated. It is possible to be a citizen now of the kingdom of heaven and yet also to long for the day when God's will will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. The age Christians live in is the beginning of the end, or as the Bible puts it, the last days. Now, for part of today's sermon, I've played to my weaknesses instead of my strengths, uh, and I've decided to give what, for me at least, is a fancy visual representation of the time in which the Bible places us. Uh, I'm really hoping this works. Here we go. From Genesis through to the four Gospels, we see the creation, the fall, the history of Israel, of course, the birth, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who is the full and final revelation of God. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus inaugurated the eschaton, that is, the resurrection age, which continues into eternity. But, as we heard in our first Bible reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, things continue as they are prior to the second coming of Jesus. Next slide. There we go. Thank you. As Christians, we are both raised with Christ already and yet remaining in the world as his witnesses. We rightly look forward to the time that our earthly and heavenly existence are no longer separate, but together. We're not told when that will happen, by the way, but it certainly will happen. It will happen when Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Next slide. When he returns, and in my opinion, immediately carries out the final judgment, then the heavenly reality, the domain in which God's perfect will is always done, will figuratively come down. In the uh, immortal words of the 80s singer-songwriter Belinda Carlisle, the scriptures do use imagery of heaven becoming a place on earth. 
And we saw in the, uh, the reading from Revelation. But in similar fashion, and this is one that I think we often a bit scatty on, the Bible also suggests that the created order, along with the saved people of God, will figuratively go up. To use the language, for instance, of Revelation 21, God's dwelling place will now be among the people, heaven coming down. And to use the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for example, though the Lord himself will descend, those who are still alive and left will be, quote, caught up together with Jesus and to meet his people in the air. What this means is that heaven is not so much a fluffy place of rainbows and unicorns, but it's actually a shorthand for what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. It is a physical reality where we have real flesh and bone bodies, real minds and do real activities. Of course, the saddest thing about knowing the truth that is in Christ is knowing that those who have not taken part in the first resurrection, that is, those who have not repented and put their faith in Jesus, will receive the justice they absolutely deserve. On account of their own sinful will and volition, and along with Satan and his angels, they will all suffer the eternal torment of hell. We'll look more at heaven and hell uh, in a little while, but for now, hopefully we can start to appreciate how the fact that we've already entered into God's future impacts in so many ways on how we live in the here and now. For starters, it's actually one of the big motivations to pursue holiness in our day-to-day -day lives. Paul writes, for example, in Colossians 3, one of my favourite parts of Paul's writing, actually, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, i.e. the final judgment, then you also will appear with him in glory. And if you know the rest of that great chapter in Colossians chapter 3, you'll know what follows is this big long list of all the sinful things where to kill or to put off, and then all the godly things where to embrace and put on. Living in both the last days and the resurrection age also provides the basis for having inner joy, inner peace and inner contentment despite the very real painful trials and sufferings of the perishing world. For example, and I'm guessing this could be a favourite passage for, for some, what Paul writes in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Why? The Lord is near. Uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, on this point, living in both the last days and the resurrection age is a motivation for evangelism. Do make sure you invite people along to Easter Church, won't you? 
We must tell of his salvation while we wait for the day when Jesus comes will be too late. A great quote from this late systematic theologian named uh, Anthony Hakima puts it like this, and I quote, Jesus had said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come from Matthew 24. This preaching of the gospel, therefore, is both a distinctive mark of the age in which we now live and a sign of pointing forward to Christ's second coming. The missionary preaching of the gospel is a sign which reminds us of Christ's victory in the past and which anticipates his glorious return. So, brothers and sisters, I declare to you, every effort toward your personal holiness, every prayer, every time you do something to nourish your own spiritual life, every effort you put into killing your sinful thoughts, words and deeds, every effort at telling others the gospel, it's all you becoming more of the real you. The you that's currently hidden in Christ, but on that final day will be revealed when there's no longer any conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And speaking of that day, point two on your outline, we're now going to look briefly at the judgment itself, or as I've called it, the end of the beginning. On the last day, Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we say rightly in the Creed. He will separate all people into two categories, just like a, a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Those to the left, the sheep, those to the right, the goats, right? To those who have lived with him as Lord and Saviour, he will give us entry into the glorious kingdom that has been prepared for us since the creation of the world. To those who have continued to live in their smug, defiant rebellion against him, he will send into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You can read that in Matthew 25. The Bible has a lot to say about that final judgment, that last day. But two things in particular seem to get more airtime than most. They are firstly, the rightness, the absolute goodness of God's final judgment. And secondly, the unexpectedness, the suddenness of that final judgment. We'll start by briefly looking at the rightness first. Uh, you might not know this, the word hallelujah is a joyful expression that means, someone, praise God, easy. There are only four times that that word hallelujah occurs in the New Testament. And all of those four times are in Revelation chapter 19. And all of them are praising God for his decisive, final and eternal judgment upon all worldly power and all worldly people that lived in deliberate rebellion against Jesus and his church. To get a feel for it, we'll just look at the first part that has the first two hallelujahs. Revelation 19 from verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. And notice there's actually a lot more shouting than singing. In Revelation, shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just, right are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, who's symbolic of all worldly rule and, and political power, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever Friends, what are the many immoral things about atheism? 
is that it excludes the possibility of a final divine judgment for all people who have ever lived. It means that for Hitler, there's no ultimate reckoning. He doesn't speak all evil, like all the other big-name dictators who are atheists in the 20th century. And apparently all that happens is he commits suicide and then ceases to exist. What a horrendously dreadful universe we live in, if that really is the case. The atheist might well justify his or her position saying they just can't accept the possibility of a good God when the world is capable of things that are so evil like the Holocaust. But that is such a cowardly cop-out. Because by the same logic, frankly better logic, one could respond, well, I can't believe there is not a God, lest there is no ultimate justice for an unspeakably horrible evil like that which has taken place. That the true and living God will deliver ultimate justice on the last day is one of the biggest reasons to exclaim with joy, hallelujah. I note that a lot of our contemporary Christian songwriters aren't happy to have hallelujah right after God's going to judge her and the smoke's going to go up forever and ever. But that's all right. We go with the Bible and what they shout in Revelation instead. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you and I don't also, at least in the present, have tremendous sadness on account of the reality that there will be many who enter that eternal fire. One of our former archbishops, Peter Jensen, puts it really well when he writes, For those who are perishing, responsible for their own condemnation through their unresolved rebellion against God's rule, there is the pain of exclusion from the presence of God in hell forever, of the inconsolable loss of that love that should be at the centre of human life and the sharpness of unrelieved conscience. There need be no doubt that this has been their own choice, in not wanting to be ruled by God, but we can hardly think of it without pain and horror. Amen. The other thing that the Bible keeps telling us about final judgment is the unexpectedness with which it will come. One of the most common illustrations that Jesus himself uses, and I reckon you can shout this one out, of the final judgment is that it's going to come like a... There we go. The moment someone tells you they've calculated the day, or even the period of time, other than the last days, of course, that Jesus will return, well, that's the moment you know that that someone has not believed the teaching of Jesus. No one knows the day or hour. And our job isn't to calculate the secret things of God, as if we could. Our job is to remain vigilant and ready, where to stay sober and alert, to not get too comfortable with the ways of this perishing world. Even though, as we saw in that reading from uh, 2 Peter, we could get the impression that things just go on like they always have, we're to remember that, well, that's what people thought in the days just before Noah and the flood, isn't it? And it was too late for them when the flood came. Friends, one of the simplest and most effective ways that I've seen the suddenness of the last day illustrated, which left a really big impression on me, was a preacher who once said, when Jesus returns, the suddenness of it is going to be a little like, bang, that. 
I never forgot it, and now I hope you don't either. Brothers and sisters, every time you gather with other believers under the word of God, you're doing what our loving Heavenly Father says is a great way to remain ready for that last day. The bang might make you a bit startled, but it won't make you surprised because you've kept yourself ready for that day. The person who sees no serious need of church commitment is the person for whom that last day could well end up coming as a dreadful shock. And that brings us to the third and final point. What happens beyond the last day? What are heaven and hell actually like? Well, given that heaven is really a shorthand for something like the new heavens and the new earth under God's perfect eternal rule, and that hell kind of functions as a shorthand for eternal destruction, lake of fire, outer darkness and second death as a result of God's perfect justice, perhaps a more biblically way of thinking about each of these eternal destinations is with something like renewal and torment. Relative to other things God has revealed in his word, there is less about the details of heaven and hell in the scriptures. At one level, that has to be the case because we're dealing with realities beyond the scope of our experience in a fallen, time-bound existence. But there certainly is more than enough to deeply impress upon us the absolute horror of the torment of hell and the absolute wonder of the paradise of renewal. I'll deal with hell first so that at least we can end on something a bit more positive. You might remember in his great speech to the assembled philosophers in the Areopagus, uh, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul said of God that he has made us all and placed us all in our various times and situations and, and that God did this so that we, people, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far from any one of us. One of my favourite Puritans, a guy named Thomas Boston, I think, does great justice to this teaching when he says, quote, Man naturally desires to be happy, being conscious to himself that he is not self-sufficient. He has ever a desire of something outside himself to make him happy. And the soul, being by its natural make and constitution, capable of enjoying God and nothing else being uh, commensurable to its desires, it can never have true and solid rest till it rests in the enjoyment of God. Basically, yes, we were designed to find our satisfaction in God. So what does it look like when we persistently reject our purpose and when God gives us over into our rebelliousness for all eternity? Well, Boston continues with the dreadful but logical conclusion, and I quote, Now, while the wicked are on earth, they seek their satisfaction in the creature, not the creator, in the creature. And when one fails, they go to another, thus they spend their time in the world deceiving their own souls with vain hopes. But in hell, all comfort in the creature's failing, they shall be totally and finally separated from God and see that they have thus lost him. So the doors of earth and heaven both are shut against them at once. This will create them unspeakable anguish 
or they shall live under an eternal gnawing of hunger after happiness, which they certainly know shall never be in the least measure satisfied, all doors being closed to them. Who then can imagine how this separation from God shall cut the damned to the heart? How they will roar and rage under it, and how it will sting and gnaw them through the ages of eternity. No wonder Jesus would use imagery of outer darkness, unquenchable fire, everlasting destruction to speak of what it would be like for sinners to deservingly suffer body and soul the wrath of the God they have despised. The idea that Satan is ruling over hell is, of course, thoroughly stupid and unbiblical. Jesus is obviously the one who rules over hell and the lake of unquenchable fire was designed for Satan to suffer in and all those who have followed him, which is everyone who hasn't followed Jesus, will meet uh, the same fate. The idea that sinners in hell will at least be with their friends, well, that's stupid. It foolishly thinks that friendship is possible in the absence of God's goodness, which, of course, it's not. By the way, friends, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please, please do the right thing. The thing God himself has designed you for, please turn to him in repentance. Thank him that Jesus died to pay the price for your rebellion and live with Jesus as your Lord from this day forward. Tomorrow might be too late. Could be the last day. Do it today. Do it in your own heart and mind right now as I continue speaking. Now, what about heaven then? Well, far from being like cherubs sitting on clouds playing harps and therefore, frankly, getting bored. Although, if they had a heaps good guitar, maybe. No, anyway. <laughs> It'd be more like enjoying a renewed earth where God dwells forever with his redeemed people. Uh, to quote from uh, Hakima again. Are we to spend eternity somewhere off in space, wearing white robes, plucking harps, singing songs and flitting from cloud to cloud while doing so? On the contrary, the Bible assures us that God will create a new earth on which we shall live to God's praise in glorified, resurrected bodies. On that new earth, therefore, we hope to spend eternity, enjoying its beauties, exploring its resources and using its treasures to the glory of God. Since God will make the new earth his dwelling place, and since where God dwells, there heaven is, we shall then continue to be in heaven while we are on the new earth. You can see why the Bible keeps saying the new heavens and the new earth. God is a God who happens to be at rest. For every one of the six days he was forming the world, there was an evening and a morning. But for the seventh day, the day he rested, there hasn't been an evening and a morning. God is still in his rest. And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that we are soon to enter into God's rest. And yet at the same time, God has constantly been active in sustaining the world. Jesus says that his father is always working. The logical conclusion is that in the new heavens and the new earth, our experience of rest will include satisfying work, work and rest. Now, it's hard for us to imagine because work's always difficult and slog it out, but right, remove all sin and decay and fallenness and time-boundness and think of the things that you do that you really find great satisfaction in, you know, like, like uh, restringing a guitar and it's just that, that kind of thing, right? And speaking of rest, given that we are foreigners and exiles in this world, 1 Peter 2, 
and that Jesus is preparing a place for us, John 14. Another fitting image of entering into the new heavens and the new earth will be the feeling of coming home after a long camp or a holiday. You know, that feeling of relaxing familiarity, the, the God you've always known as your heavenly father and Jesus who you've always known as your, your older brother are there and they welcome you and look after you so that you enjoy that relaxing feeling when you... It's like you're finally sleeping in your own bed again, sitting on your own couch, you know, that kind of thing. Other images include a wedding feast, which my wife really likes because she's a foodie. Uh, a glorious city is another image in which nothing defiled or impure will, will ever enter. But the big ticket item is that we'll be united with the Lord that we've always known and with whom our souls find absolute delight and satisfaction beyond what we can imagine. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Two implications that I'm going to rush through for the sake of time. Firstly, once you understand the relationship between the last days and the last day and you know where you currently fit in, it actually becomes easy to understand why God allows his children to undergo suffering. Suffering is part and parcel of the fallen world, which is heading towards destruction. It is never a good thing. Suffering itself is never to be celebrated because it's always horrible. But God, in his loving kindness and sovereign goodness, lets the suffering do its work on the Christian. Given it's part of the last days, but not of the resurrection age, when the suffering of this world befalls us, he, God, allows it to push the focus and desire of our hearts and minds toward our life that is hidden in Christ, the one that actually is who we truly are and will last into eternity. This, in turn puts us in the optimal condition to anticipate the last day. Jesus himself knows the suffering that we endure. In fact, we endure it as part of his own body. He feels it like he feels what's going on in his own body. But it fits people for the glory that is to come. And in my experience, at least, the Christians who patiently endure hardship tend to bring Jesus so much glory in the way they serve as an encouragement to, to God's church. Finally, last one, seeing our place in God's eschatological order enables us to appreciate the way God gives us guidance in making all sorts of decisions. Now, the issue of guidance for Christians is big enough for me to do a whole sermon on. And guess what? That's going to happen sometime later this year. I can't remember which congregation. Anyway. But you see, if it's a choice of should I take job A or job B, why doesn't God allow me to throw out a fleece and make it wet or not wet? Or why doesn't he write his sign in the heaven, take the first one, you know, like... Why is guidance in, in some ways sort of seemingly, you know, non-existent, but in other ways really, really definite and deliberate? Well, it's because which job you take has very little bearing 
on your setting your hearts and minds on things above and your ultimate destination of the last day, the things that have bearing on that are things like holiness. It really doesn't matter whether it's job A or job B, whether it's marry person A or person B, drive car A or drive car B, right? What matters is, will this enable me to express and to increase holiness or will it not? Will this fit me for my actual destination or will it not? God's will for you, and he says this, and you can read it in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, God's will is that you should be sanctified, made holy. That's his will for your life. <laughs> Everything else falls under that category in one way or another, and if it's uh, neither here nor there, well, then it's neither here nor there. And if it is about holiness, then it really, really matters. Now, I've got no idea whether or not we're going to have time for questions. I'm going to leave that over to Chris, but for now, I will pray, and uh, we'll, we'll let him say what happens next. If, if you've got questions or comments, if you don't have a question time, you can put them on the, um, uh, the QR code. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you uh, that you tell us about where we are in time, that the last days have indeed begun, that it's only a matter till that those days are consummated with the last day. We thank you so much that we have absolutely no need to fear the final judgment, given that Jesus has paid for all our sin, past, present and future. Help us, therefore, Heavenly Father, in our time here as aliens and strangers, to so set our hearts and minds on things above, to pursue holiness, to sit loosely to the things of the world. And when the suffering comes, Father, may we let it enable us uh, to, uh, to shape us more into the likeness of the body of Jesus that we are, and to enable us to set our thoughts and minds on the things above, the things that actually have eternal significance. Uh, it will be really, really wonderful on that last day. Pray for anyone here, Father, who as yet uh, has not turned in repentance and faith to the Lord, that in the power of your Spirit, you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith, turning then before it's too late. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.